We are in the book of Mark, chapter 3, the book of Mark, chapter 3, and so I invite you, encourage you to turn with me to that portion of God's Word. We began this study of the book of Mark six weeks ago. At the time, I mentioned two reasons why this study is important. Uh, Two reasons why it is important for us to study the book of Mark, and I'd like to remind you of these two reasons, just briefly, just for a few moments, as, uh, as we again turn to this book this day. Reason number one, we need to study the book of Mark with a view to discerning, declaring, and defending the biblical gospel and the biblical Christ. And so again, we need to study the book of Mark with a view to discerning, declaring, and defending the biblical gospel and the biblical Christ. Almost 50% of Americans claim to be born again. It begs the question, why doesn't it look like it? C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, I believe it was C.H. Spurgeon. I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure it was Spurgeon. He was walking the streets of London in the 1800s and uh, minding his own business. And a man who was drunk emerged from the alleyway and called out, Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm one of your converts. To which Spurgeon replied, you must be one of my converts because you're certainly not one of the Lord's. There is today an incongruity between what many professing Christians claim to believe and how they live. How do we explain that? How do we account for that? There are two reasons. The first is this. The church has failed to proclaim a biblical gospel. Rather than proclaiming the depravity of man, the sovereignty of God, the beauty of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and the absolute necessity of repentance, the church talks about a God whose greatest desire is to make us happy. Moreover, the church has failed to present a biblical Christ. Rather than presenting a Savior who propitiates, appeases an angry God, substituting himself as a bloody sacrifice on behalf of sinners, the church talks about a Christ who wants to be our best friend. The majority of people today do not hear a biblical gospel, nor do they hear of a biblical Christ. And it accounts for much of what passes today as evangelicalism, a gaping inconsistency between what is professed and what is actually practiced. So we need to study the book of Mark with a view to discerning, declaring, and defending the biblical gospel, and the biblical Christ. Second reason is this. We need to study the book of Mark with a view to encountering, embracing, and enjoying Jesus Christ. We are made for eternity. We are made for something far greater than this world can offer. Anything this world can offer. The Lord Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. 
and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so our hungering, our thirsting, can only be satisfied in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet how many people are hopelessly and aimlessly seeking satisfaction in things that are material, things that are temporal, passing here today, gone tomorrow, all the while it's escaping them that our souls are actually wired for something spiritual and something eternal that can only be satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by the end of our study of the book of Mark, I want us to be seeking and savoring the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the two reasons, two chief reasons, why we are embarking, we've embarked on this study, why we're going to commit the next seven or eight months, Lord willing, to this study, the study of this book. Again, let me repeat them. Number one, we need to study the book of Mark with a view to discerning, declaring, and defending the biblical gospel and the biblical Christ. Number two, we need to study the book of Mark with a view to encountering, embracing, and enjoying Christ. And so as I study, as I read, as I pray, as I preach, I always have those two reasons before me. We're meandering through the book, but always coming back to these two reasons. These are, these, these, this is what we're aiming for. This is what we need to keep in view. These two objectives, these, these two goals, these two ends as we make our way through these 16 chapters. Now Mark begins his book. You know this if you've been here. He begins with a beautiful statement, a very concise statement that he, he then unpacks in these 16 chapters. The statement is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, or rather the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so as we read the book of Mark, what can we expect to find? The gospel, the biblical gospel. And we find, we discover, we see the Lord Jesus going out, going forth in his public ministry preaching. Yes, he heals people with various diseases. Praise God, that's wonderful, that's beautiful. Yes, he casts out demons. Praise God, fantastic. Yes, he feeds people miraculously. That too is fantastic. Yes, he even raises people from the dead. But you know, all of this is secondary. The Lord Jesus is a preacher. And the Lord Jesus goes out as a preacher. And the Lord Jesus is declaring the gospel. The Lord Jesus is proclaiming good news. And the good news is very simple. Repent and believe in me. That is what he is preaching far and wide. There's a problem though, isn't there? The problem is this. People will never believe. We will never repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ until we perceive what? Our need for him. A couple of Sundays ago, I threw a phrase out there, and I was was happy to see that a couple of you latched on to it. Uh, Let me repeat it this Lord's Day. It's simply as follows. Uh, Christ is only sweet when sin is bitter. Oh, think on that one. Christ is only sweet. When sin is bitter, we only repent. We only believe in the Lord Jesus Christ when we perceive our absolute need of him. That's why in the second chapter he makes it clear, it's only the sick who call for a doctor. I have not come to call the righteous. I have come to call sinners. Who are the righteous? They are the self-righteous. They are those who are sinners, but they do not perceive their sin. They refuse to acknowledge their sin. They they, they refuse to come face to face with their sin, and they hide behind their own perceived self-righteousness. 
And this manifests itself, and we've seen this the past couple of Sundays, this manifests itself in man-made religion. It manifests itself in man-made traditions. It manifests itself in man-made regulations. I refuse to acknowledge that I am as bad as the Bible depicts me. I refuse to acknowledge that I am as evil, inherently evil, as the Lord Jesus seems to imply and seem to suggest. No, here is what I am doing. Here is what I am trusting in. Here is my religion. Here are my traditions. Here are my regulations. Here is what I have built. Here is what I have framed. Here is what I have constructed. And this sets me apart from that person. This sets me apart from that crowd. This sets me apart from those people. I know what those people are doing. And this gains me favor in God's sight. The Lord Jesus said, I have not come to call that person. cannot call that person. That person doesn't know how sick they are. That person doesn't know how riddled with sin they are. No, I have not come to call the righteous, the self-righteous. I have come to call sinners. Uh, There's an author, famous author, mid-1800s, by the name of Robert Louis Stevenson. If you've never read any of Robert Louis Stevenson, pick up some of his novels because he gives us a stark look into human nature. And if you've never read any of his books, I'm sure you've heard of one of them. One of his most famous is called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, you maybe never read the book, but you've heard that phrase, haven't you? We, we, use, we, we use so many phrases today, and we have no idea of their, their origin. But that's a phrase that comes from a book written by Robert Louis Stevenson. And so we'll use that phrase to describe someone behind their back, never to their face, but we'll use that phrase to describe someone who uh, has severe mood swings. And so one day they're all bubbly and jolly and on cloud number nine and mountaintop and just exuberant and kind and everything else. And the next moment, boom, something happens. And they're like a different person. And we'll kind of whisper under our breath, boy, they're kind of like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Well, this phrase comes from Robert Louis Stevenson. And in actual fact, it has nothing to do with mood swings. He has something far more serious in view something far more sinister. In this novel, he describes this man. His name is Dr. Jekyll. And this man is an upstanding citizen. Uh, This man is a doctor, accomplished. This man lives a very respectable life. He is an object of admiration by people around him. But you see, Dr. Jekyll harbors a deep, stark secret. It is this. He has secret inclinations deep down within He has secret inclinations toward evil. Secret inclinations toward evil that he entertains once a while in his imagination. But he never dares put into practice. Why? His conscience bothers him. And he has this fear of the consequences of acting on the evil inclinations of his heart. And so here he lives, this exterior of accomplishment, respectability. Someone, something to be admired. And yet secretly he indulges in his imagination in all sorts of evil. Evil that he would put into practice if not for his conscience and if not for the fear of consequences. So finally, do you know what Dr. Jekyll does? He invents a potion. And he takes this potion. And this potion will do what for him? It will transform him visibly. And it will release those evil inclinations. 
and allow him to actually act on those evil inclinations. Allow him to actually indulge those evil inclinations as someone else. It will free him from his conscience. And as he indulges those evil inclinations as someone else, it will free him from what? All fear of repercussions and consequences. And so he will maintain this exterior of respectability and yet take this potion and indulge his evil inclinations. As he takes this potion for the first time, he reflects, I knew at the first breath of this new life, that I was more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil, and the thought embraced me and delighted me like wine. And as he takes that potion, Dr. Jekyll transforms into Mr. Hyde. Why Mr. Hyde? Because all that had been hidden now comes into view. And off he goes at night, indulging those evil inclinations, knowing that he could return back home, go to bed, and in the morning he would wake up as respectable Dr. Jekyll. And then whenever he desired, he could take that potion, transform into Mr. Hyde, and satisfy his heart's longings in all sorts of sin and wantonness and depravity, always knowing he was beyond what? The fear of consequences. Always knowing that as Mr. Hyde, he was free of what? His conscience. Always knowing that he would transform back into Dr. Jekyll. But as Dr. Jekyll, his conscience begins to bother him. And he begins to stand aghast of some of the things he's done as Mr. Hyde. Some of the sins he's committed. Some of the atrocities he's immersed himself in. And in that state, he vows that he will never take the potion again. Not only that, he not only vows that he will never take the potion again, he vows that he's going to atone for everything he has done as Mr. Hyde. He's going to atone for it. You know what he's going to get? He's going to get religion. He's going to become religious. And he's going to devote himself to helping others. He's going to devote himself to some sort of religion, some sort of exterior form, some sort of good works to help squash Mr. Hyde, to help atone for all that he has done as Mr. Hyde. And so he resolves, in his own words, I resolve to redeem the past. I labored to relieve suffering. So he goes about doing good works. He goes about devoting himself to religion. And one day he is sitting on the park bench, and he wrote, As I smiled, comparing myself with others, at the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me. A horrid nausea and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down and I was once more Mr. Hyde. Why? What is different? He had not taken the potion. Involuntarily, he had become Mr. Hyde. Why? Because the very thing he thought would squash the very thing he thought would atone for all of his misdeeds and those sinful inclinations, his good works, became what? Actually the means by which he permanently became Mr. Hyde. Because his religion and his devotion to good works demonstrated 
that at the root of his sinful inclination lay self-centeredness, lay self-love, lay self-absorption, whereby even when he devoted himself to religion, and even when he devoted himself that was to all that is good in the estimation of others, he discovered that he began to compare himself to others, take secret delight now in the life that he was living, and there the mask came off. And who he truly was in his inner being, an individual absolutely in love with himself, self-absorbed, all that he had kept hidden, Mr. High came into view, and he realized who he really was. Do you see it, friend? That's us. That is us. You see, we have those inclinations, don't we? You think about those moments. You think about taking that potion. The potion represents what? Just different circumstances and situations in life that bring to the surface what kind of lies dormant within. And so we have those moments, fits of rage. Anger, where'd that come from? Those moments when we indulge our imagination in things that would shame us if they were ever brought to the light. Moments when we have pangs of envy, just downright envy and jealousy, rooted in deep-seated pride. Friend, understand this. Please understand this. God help us to understand this. At those moments, friend, That is who we really are. Do you understand that? All that we think is hidden, all that we think is covered with the veneer of respectability, it is all just that, a veneer. And those moments, those things we seek to to compress, those things we, we seek to control, some better than others, but all of us fail in some extent. Those inclinations to which we never give full vent because of conscience and the fear of the consequences. Friend, understand this please or you will not understand the gospel. At those moments, we see who we really are. And you cannot hide it with religion. You cannot hide it with church attendance. You cannot hide it by giving away thousands and tens of thousands. You cannot hide it by a flurry of activity and service. You cannot hide it with an exterior of respectability and civility and morality. You cannot hide it by behavior which is esteemed and looked to and even applauded by people around us. No. Because we find, just as Dr. Jekyll, that in those moments of religious devotion. When we seek our hearts, we find lurking what? This desire to compare ourselves to others, whereby even that which is good in and of itself, even our good works become an expression of what? Self-love, self-centeredness, and self-absorption. Friend, hear the words of the Lord Jesus. Please hear them, hear them, hear them well. I have not come. To call the righteous. I have come to call sinners. Those who understand their condition before a holy God. Those who perceive of their sickness and call for a doctor. You see, this book is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The son of God.
But there's more in that statement, isn't there? That opening statement. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is he? The son of God. And Mark immediately proceeds to do what? Explain, to affirm that Jesus is indeed the son of God. It was announced by the Baptist, John the Baptist. It was confirmed by the Father at the time of Christ's baptism in the Jordan River. It was tested by the devil in the wilderness. It was then manifested in what? Christ's authority, his creational authority. He heals diseases. He casts out demons. Creational authority. It is manifested in his judicial authority. He forgives sinners. He looks the paralytic straight in the face. My son, your sins are forgiven. He calls sinners. Matthew, a Levi, the scum of the earth, calls him to follow him. Judicial authority. And then he manifests his authority in scriptural authority. And he just sweeps away these man-made traditions, sweeps away these man-made regulations governing the Sabbath, makes it clear, unashamedly clear, proclaiming, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And what's the reaction? What's the response? You can see it through these first two chapters. Mark is explaining who the Lord Jesus is. Yes, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understand the gospel. He has not come to call the righteous. He has come to call sinners. Understand who he is. He is the Son of God. Again, understand that was made clear by John the Baptist. That was made clear by God the Father. That was even made clear by the devil in the wilderness. You've now seen his authority, his creational authority, his judicial authority, his scriptural authority. What is the response? We come into the third chapter, and what, we do, what do we discover in the first seven verses? There, there are these men who are hardened in heart. They've seen it all. This is just mind-boggling. They have seen it all. They have heard it all. But their hearts are hardened. The heart, the soul, the mind, the intellect, the power of reason, the affections, principally love and hate, the will, the power of choice, Their hearts, their souls, their entire beings, they are hardened. They are insensible and they are inflexible. They are beyond feeling. I warned a little girl here a couple of weeks ago. I was going to use her as an example, an illustration. Her eyes nearly bulked out of her head, so I won't mention her name. But I was over at their house, nearly said the word. Good thing I didn't, the name. Over at their house and uh, just stood there with my jaw open as I saw her running across their driveway. Not paved, not cement, stones, all sorts of sizes, jagged stones. There she was barefoot, just hightailing it right across the driveway without flinching, without pausing, without any what? Pain. Why? She'd been doing it all her life and her feet had become what? Hardened, insensitive to the pain. That is what these men's hearts are like. They are insensible. They are past feeling. Those of us who have spent any time working with hammers or, or spades and shovels and picks, we develop those calluses, don't we, on our hands over time. And then those calluses, you can touch them, you can prick them, you can cut them, you can do whatever you want with them. You don't feel anything. This is the condition of their hearts. They are face to face with the Son of God. They have heard the proclamation of the gospel, repent and believe in me. They have seen his authority manifested in so many different ways, and yet what is their response to it? They are beyond feeling. The glory of God makes no impression upon their mind, their heart, their will at all. They are absolutely hardened to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, what we see in the remainder of the third chapter are three additional responses. Three additional responses. Three additional groups. Let me just give them to you right at the outset. Uh, The first group are the the crowds that follow the Lord Jesus. The second group are the brothers, his siblings, half-brothers, half-sisters. The third group are the scribes. And these three represent three very different responses to the biblical gospel and to the biblical Christ. It's easy to identify these three responses because each of the sections ends with a declaration, more or less. And so look in verse 11. I'm in Mark chapter 3. The demons, the unclean spirits cry what? You are the Son of God. That ends the first section. Now look down at verse 21. What's the very last statement? He is out of his mind. That ends the second section. Now look down at verse 30. He has an unclean spirit. So three very different declarations concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the Son of God. He is out of his mind. He has an unclean spirit. And these three represent three very different responses to all that Mark has revealed, made plain, made clear in the first two chapters. Let's take them in sequence as they come at us. So the first, in the crowds. What do we see in the crowds? We see enthusiasm. That's the first response, enthusiasm. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And so in the crowds, response number one, this revelation of Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, response number one, Enthusiasm. Now, Mark mentions two important details about this great crowd. The first is this. These people come from all over the place. Uh, These people come from many different places. As a matter of fact, he mentions five different geographical regions. And so he mentions the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Do you know where they're located? This is the extreme north. If If you can kind of picture a map of the nation of Israel. This is the extreme north, a region called Phoenicia. He then mentions Galilee. And so as we move south from Phoenicia, we come into the region called Galilee. He also mentions Judea. South of Galilee, we have Samaria, and then we have Judea. So we have a reference to Phoenicia, moving south, a reference to Galilee, moving even further south, skipping over Samaria. We have a reference to Judea, And then the fourth geographical region, moving even further south, Idumea. And so we have the extreme north, Phoenicia, and the extreme south, Idumea. And then he mentions a fifth geographical region beyond the Jordan, east of the Jordan River. What point is Mark making? Simply this, these people have come from all over the place. 
There are all sorts of people. They've come from all different places. They've come from all different locations. Some have come from the north. Some have come from the extreme south. Some have come from even as far as across the Jordan. There is this great crowd, this multitude of diverse people surrounding the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing he wants us to understand. The second detail, however, is this. Despite the fact that there are many people from many different places following the Lord Jesus Christ, they all follow him for only one reason. Look at the end of verse 8. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And so they are drawn to the Lord Jesus. Why? Because this is, this is, this is, this is pivotal. Because they hear about all that he is doing. Now, here's a detail I don't want you to miss. It doesn't come out right here, but it comes out later in the book. This is made clear in all four gospel accounts. By the end of Christ's public ministry, this crowd is nowhere to be found. John makes this painfully clear, painfully clear. As he unfolds Christ's public ministry, he shows progressively how this crowd, this enthusiastic, excited crowd, gradually, as they come face to face, not merely with what the Lord Jesus is doing, but with what the Lord Jesus is saying, they gradually drift away. You see, here we have people from many different places following the Lord Jesus Christ for only one reason. They have heard about what he is doing. Nothing wrong with that in and of themselves. Nothing wrong with being amazed by the fact that the Lord Jesus is healing diseases. Nothing wrong with being drawn to the fact that the Lord Jesus is casting out demons, but they've missed the greater message. These miracles, what the Lord Jesus is doing, this is not an end in and of itself. This is merely a message. This is merely a revelation of who the Lord Jesus is, his authority, affirming, confirming what? That he is indeed the Son of God. This is simply a revelation of the gospel that back in the garden prior to the fall, there weren't any diseases. There weren't any demons. As a consequence of man's fall into sin and fall into depravity, we have diseases, we have demonic oppression, we have these things which are consequences consummate with the fall. And the Lord Jesus, by healing diseases, the Lord Jesus, by casting out demons, he is pointing to a greater work. He is pointing to this new creation that is coming. He is pointing to his work of redemption whereby he will give himself for his people. And he is commanding people in all places to repent and believe. That is not what draws the crowd. You see, they do not see beyond the immediacy of their felt needs. They do not see beyond the immediacy of their self-interest. And so, so many of them coming from so many places, such enthusiasm... Please understand this, friend. It is misplaced enthusiasm. Dare I say, it is misguided enthusiasm. That is response number one. Now look at response number two. In the brothers, we see skepticism. Pick up the narrative of the reading in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, 
Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family, these are his half-brothers, his half-sisters, when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him. Here's response number two. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. He's mad. This is a lunatic. We're dealing with a lunatic. He is out of his mind. And so his half-brothers and his half-sisters, his family, his siblings, seek to seize him. Now set the context. The Lord Jesus calls his disciples a new family. He calls these 12 men to what? To be with him. To carry on his preaching. To have the same authority to cast out demons. Here we have the foundation of the church. These disciples become apostles. These apostles form the foundation of the church, the commencement of the body of Christ. It is based on the witness of these apostles that we affirm the canonicity of the New Testament. They have a specific, particular role to fulfill as the disciples, the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. He appoints 12 of them. Why? Representing what? The 12 tribes of Israel. Why? Because this is the beginning of a new Israel. This is the beginning of a new Israel which will depend on one's relationship with the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in marked contrast to these disciples who get it, and more of them later, the Lord Jesus, having appointed these twelve, returns home, surrounded by this great crowd, this frenzy of enthusiasm, this frenzy of activity, and his own flesh and blood, half-brothers, half-sisters, meaning they are the children of Mary Mary and Joseph, the Lord Jesus himself not being the son, the physical son of Joseph. Half-brothers, half-sisters. As they see what is happening, this this is startling. As they see what is transpiring, given all that they have heard him say, given all that they have heard him, seen him do, their only conclusion is what? He must be? Out of his mind. He must be stark crazy. You see, Mark makes it clear, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He makes his identity clear, he makes his message clear, and yet even his own brothers and sisters at this point, his own siblings, his own brothers, do not get it. And the only conclusion, the only only reasonable explanation as far as they're concerned is this. It's skeptical. He is out of his mind. Now we have a third response, that of the scribes, antagonism. Brings us to the 18th verse. Follow along as I read through to verse, uh, through, through to verse, the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 22, rather. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, 
but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. And so response number one, the crowds. Enthusiasm, misplaced, misguided. Response number two, the brothers. Skepticism. And now response number three, the scribes. Open antagonism. And so they've come down from Jerusalem. They've heard about what the Lord Jesus is doing. They've come to see for themselves, to inspect it, make a conclusion. Uh, their conclusion is this. He's demon-possessed. He's of Beelzebul. Beelzebul, transliteration of the Greek, the name of a, a, a god going back to Old Testament times that the Jews just sort of made equivalent to Satan. And so they are saying, look, he, he is doing this by the power of Satan. This is actually Satan at work. All this, these demons being cast out and declaring that he's, he's the son of God and all of this. Understand it. He's doing this by the power of Satan. The Lord Jesus knows exactly what they're saying. He calls them to himself, and he makes two points. The first is this. He shows them, number one, the absurdity of their conclusion, their reasoning. Um, if I'm doing this by the power of Satan, that means Satan is casting out Satan. That means Satan is fighting against Satan. Uh, that means Satan's house is divided against itself. That makes no sense at all. And then the second point he makes is by way of a parable. He says, look, you know that if there's a strong man with a house and treasure in that house, if you want to get your hands on that treasure, what do you first have to do? You have to go in and you have to deal with the strong man. You have to bind him. And when you bind him, you can then plunder his treasure. Understand this. Satan is a strong man. Satan has a house. Satan has a treasure. It's all those over whom he rules. People. Understand this. The fact that I am casting out demons does not testify to the fact that I am doing this by the power of Satan. That would mean that Satan is fighting against Satan. No. It means what? I have entered the house of the strong man. I have done what? I have bound the strong man. And I am now doing what? I am plundering his treasure before his very eye. You see, he is the eternal God. He is the one who has authority, absolute authority over Satan. He is the one who has absolute authority over his demonic hosts. He is the one who has come bringing the kingdom, binding the strong man. He is now preaching the gospel. He is plundering the strong man's treasure. So the fact that he is casting out demons doesn't testify to the fact that he's doing this by the power of Satan. It clearly testifies to what? That he's the anointed one of God. That he is acting in accordance with the power of the Holy Spirit. The fact that they are attributing what he is doing to Satan. They are ascribing the work of the Spirit of God to the devil himself is the sin of all sins. And he makes it clear what? It is unforgivable. It is what? It is unpardonable. This is an eternal sin. There is forgiveness for every other sin. There is no forgiveness for this one. Ascribing the work of the Spirit of God to Satan. Now check that, friends, because it raises a number of questions, doesn't it? And let me utter uh, two, words, two words of caution when it comes to this unpardonable sin. The first is this. The unpardonable sin is something exceptional. Exceptional. All other sins God can forgive and will forgive in the Lord Jesus Christ when we repent and believe. Except this sin. 
This is an exceptional sin which moves men and women beyond the realm of God's forgiveness. There is no forgiveness. But understand it is exceptional. Understand, make a clear distinction here. You think, for example, of the Apostle Paul as he writes Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He gives a little, little testimony of how God saved him. And he reminds Timothy, I was at one time what? A blasphemer. I was a blasphemer. And yet God's grace superabounded toward me. A blasphemer, a reviler, a persecutor of God's people. That is who I was. You were, God was scraping the bottom of the barrel when he saved me. The chief of sinners. And here's why the grace of God superabounded toward me. So that I might serve as an example. That I might be an example of the perfect patience of God toward all who will believe. In other words, if God can forgive me, he can forgive Anyone. If God's grace superabounded toward me, it can superabound toward anyone. If the blood of Christ covers my sin and iniquity, it can cover the sin and iniquity of anyone. It can cover the sin of drunken Noah. It can cover the sin of idolatrous Abraham. It can cover the sin of adulterous and murderous David. It can cover the sin of a blasphemer like the Apostle Paul. Make no mistake, the blood of Christ is efficacious to wipe away every sin. What a compelling argument to come to him in faith and repentance. And what a stark, dire warning as to the gravity of this exceptional sin, whereby we ascribe the power of the Spirit to Satan himself. But understand this, it is exceptional. Second word of caution is this, the unpardonable sin is never regretted. This is important. The unpardonable sin is never regretted. In other words, no one commits the unpardonable sin and then sits around regretting it. Oh no, what have I done? In the past, I have had a couple people come to me, fear and trembling. Is it possible I've committed the unpardonable sin? And my response has always been the very fact that you're asking the question. The very fact that you're concerned reveals what? You have not committed the unpardonable sin. Those who commit the unpardonable sin do not regret it. They are full of enmity and malice and hatred toward the Lord Jesus Christ. There was, there was a man, his name was Francis Spira, or Spira, an Italian, 16th century, a lawyer, heard the gospel. He converted from Catholicism to Protestantism. And then he was arrested, and they threatened to, uh, to torture him because he converted from Catholicism to Protestantism, and under the fear of torture, he recanted. He said, all right, I'm no longer a Protestant. I've gone back to Catholicism. They released him. He regretted it the rest of his life. We have his writings in which he laments and regrets and pours tears as he puts pen to paper, pours tears over what he has done. John Calvin himself wrote him on many occasions pastorally, 
to seek to minister to him from the word of God, assuring him he had not committed the unpardonable sin. The fact that he was sitting around in such, such a regrettable state testified to this fact, and yet he was consumed by this. As a matter of fact, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with it, when Pilgrim enters into the house of interpreter, one of the rooms into which he enters, he sees a man in an iron cage. Do you remember that? Many think that in Bunyan's mind eye, that is Francis Spira. That is who he is describing. I hate to say this. It, it almost makes me cringe, but I depart from Bunyan a little bit here and have problems with his depiction of the man in the iron cage. Because as, as he depicts this apostate, this man who has committed the unpardonable sin, he depicts him and describes him as what? Lamenting and regretting and almost repenting of what he had done. I don't think that's an accurate depiction of those who commit the unpardonable sin. Friend, there is no regret. There is no looking back. Understand this. The unpardonable sin is an informed, an informed act of malice directed toward the Spirit of God. That's what these scribes are guilty of. These scribes have come down from Jerusalem. They've heard the news all over the Internet. Down they've come. What's going on? The buzz. Everybody's talking about it. They see the Lord Jesus healing. They see these demons being cast out and people now in their right mind. And they hear these demons testifying to what? You are the Son of God. And the Holy Spirit grants them what? Some sort of enlightenment. Some measure of enlightenment. It is not enlightenment unto salvation, but it is a measure of enlightenment whereby they understand what is happening. They perceive exactly what the Lord Jesus is doing. And they know that what the Lord Jesus is doing testifies to what? That he is indeed God's anointed. And yet what do they do? Out of their malice, they ascribe knowingly, consciously, as an expression of hatred and animosity toward the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, they ascribe the power and work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. And these are shocking words. These words should make us sit up and take notice. The Lord Jesus makes it clear. Every sin under heaven, his blood will atone for it all, where there is faith and repentance among God's people. But this sin... This one's unpardonable. A line has been crossed. A destiny has been set from which there is no return. Here is the expression, an informed act of malice against the Holy Spirit. So, friends, I hope you got them. A threefold response to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark makes it clear. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What is his gospel? Repent and believe in me. To repent and believe in him, we must see our sin. He has not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This Jesus Christ is the Son of God. His creational, judicial, and scriptural authority made clear. And here we have this threefold response. In the crowds, oh yeah, there's lots of enthusiasm. It's all misguided. Misplaced. It's driven by self-interest. What's in it for me here? They don't see beyond the immediacy of the miracles. In his own siblings, his brothers, 
that are skepticism. He's out of his mind. And in the case of the scribes, there is what? Absolute antagonism. He has an unclean spirit. Now understand this. 2,000 years have passed, but nothing has changed. When the biblical gospel is proclaimed and the biblical Christ is proclaimed, it will always engender, create, this threefold response. Yeah, there will be enthusiasm, but at times misplaced based on a misunderstanding of exactly what's being said and exactly what's being offered. Failure to see the greater realities, greater beyond, unable to see beyond the immediacy of my present circumstances and my felt needs. At times there will be skepticism. You know, I can't explain it away. I, can't, I don't really understand this man, this God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's just, it's crazy. I want nothing to do with it. I'm just going to live my life. At times there is outright unbridled hostility, animosity toward the biblical gospel and the biblical Christ. The question it begs of us is this. What is the only appropriate response? Look at verses 31 and 35, and I'll I'll conclude simply by reading these and leaving them with you. And his mother, Mark writes, and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, principally made up of the disciples. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. My friend, what is the will of God? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Blessed are you, our God and Father. Teach us your word. With our lips, may we declare all your ways. With our hearts, may we delight in all your precepts and promises. With our minds, may we meditate on all your works. Help us, our Father, to fix the eyes of our hearts on Christ, in whose name we ask it. Amen.